Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place uh, for sharing knowledge, stories, and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FPI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now. Redfern is the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sharika Halaludin. Hello. It's nice to be here with you, Darren. And you. I feel like coming into a new chapter and year of this show, I'm often thinking about what it is that we actually mean when we talk about trying to understand and value our racial identities and what it is to be platforming conversations on race, which I know you and I have spoken about a lot. We're searching for the depths and nuance of all of the things that have been built over the last three or four years of this show. And I think something that's often on our minds is how a lot of the transformative work for racial justice or all forms of social justice is embedded or deeply seated in the relationships that we form as friends, lovers, comrades. And I guess we find ourselves asking a lot what it would mean to consider the radical potential of love, of empathy and pleasure as an antidote to oppression and disconnection. Our guest today is someone who has grappled with big questions around intimacy and connection, comfortably sitting with the messy and complex feelings of it all. Mimi Zhu is a queer Chinese-Australian writer and artist. Maybe you've encountered their work on Instagram, uh, their soothing messages and lush gradient adorned visuals have been shared all around. Mimi is dedicated to the healing power of the written word and shares in a way that is intimate and heart-tugging and rooted in a desire to, to heal. They speak of the pain and violence that can stop us from knowing how to love and receive love, especially as racially marginalized queer people. They've just released their first book titled Be Not Afraid of Love. It brings together their meditations and all of this, part memoir, part essay collection, and part spiritual guide. It's a rumination on healing and Mimizu's journey to rediscover what it means to give and receive love. They joined us this week to chat through what it is to unveil vulnerable experiences in their work and the necessity of investing in love as a force of change.
Mimi, you're back in Australia for the first time in years after living in New York and part of what has brought you here is the release of your book, Be Not Afraid of Love. It's a body of work that brings together your meditations on trauma, healing, boundaries, mindfulness and queerness. What has it been like to share this book with audiences here in a place that you deliberately left behind? It's been surreal. I haven't expected anything, truly. I hadn't even expected for the book to reach Australia, to be honest, just because I feel like I tend to make myself small. And also in Australia in general, when I was growing up, I never felt like my work was worth reading or I never thought it was interesting enough to the audiences. And that's a lot of like, you know, talking myself down and making myself small, you know, that voice in my head. But obviously when I was offered for the book to come to Australia, I, you know, said a resounding yes. And it came out here and I was away, so I didn't know about the reception and I really stay away from numbers. But this is the first time I've been back since the book has been written. And I just kind of let whatever happened happen. And I did, I've done two events so far on the tour in Melbourne and Sydney, and they both sold out, which was shocking. Like I just genuinely couldn't believe it. But I think it goes to show that if we're meant to find each other, we will. And I think there's a deep importance for there to be Australian writers of color, right? Like I feel like in America, there's a lot of conversations around identity and diaspora. There's a lot of conversation about what being Asian American looks like, but I'm still not grasping a conversation about Asian Australianness. And when I came back, I didn't want to pretend like I'm like an American writer because I'm not, I'm an Australian writer. And the reason I write about earth is because I was raised here because I was raised in Queensland with the banana trees and the humid air, right? And the salty sea and that deeply shapes my work. And so it only felt right to come back here. And it's wild to see how my work has played any part in shaping anybody else, especially fellow Australians of color. So, yeah. You speak so lovingly about Queensland. What's your relationship to home in this moment? very complex as it is right like where I am now I'm really prioritizing peace and I didn't always I actually used to prioritize in many ways what disguised itself what was distraction but disguised itself as success or you know productivity productivity exactly Mm. or vibrancy which i still love you know chaos which i also love a healthy dose of (laughs) and queensland doesn't really offer that in a nice way right but when i do think of peace and what brings me closer to that i do think of the pace that i was raised in and like i said i think about the climate and that just automatically gives me a deep sense of relief it makes me feel like i have nothing to prove because I kind of like stopped trying to prove myself at some point in Queensland. And so now that I'm in a radically different headspace than how I was when I was a teenager, 
I can also appreciate Queensland in a radically different way for the land, right? And for the pockets of community that I found there. Um, and so it's always complex, but I'm really trying to lead with love and gratitude while also seeing the origin stories of a lot of my coping mechanisms and pain, but handling it with self-compassion this time. Mm. Part of what's brought you to that kind of radically different place and being able to articulate so deeply on love and compassion is your book. The opening words are, I must be honest, I'm afraid of love. Can you speak to how it feels to turn your inner musings that you've probably been working on for years into writing that is now in the world? Yeah, I mean, that first sentence, I remember when I wrote it, I was like, whoa, (laughs) (laughs) I did that, you know, because I think what it took for me was to be honest, right? And that is an inseparable part of my healing practice, like, To be honest about the messy, ugly, grievous, shadowy feelings has been an essential part of me learning how to love myself. And I do critique a lot of the time, you know, the way that capitalism has shaped self-love in regards to it looking really glamorous or beautiful or elegant or whatever, when I'm like, it's not. Like, it is a strenuous, painful, heavy exercise. It takes so much unlearning and relearning. It takes devotion. You know, it takes getting through days when you just have to feel awful, but love yourself through that instead of push that away and be like, oh, I'm a baddie. You know what I mean? And so that opening line, I think, is a reflection of the ways that I've written. And I realized at one point, because I actually studied to be a journalist and I just wanted to write other people's stories. But I just felt like I was always deleting a part of myself, right? When that's impossible, I think, as a writer, you're always putting your perspective into things, your compassion, your, your lens. And for me, I realized that I really wanted to just write about those messy thoughts in my head. Because surprisingly, I don't see enough literature that does that, right? I don't see enough just public work that just muses on like that names like I'm jealous right or I'm insecure today without someone being like oh but like don't be like you don't have a reason to be it's like I just do so let me experience that let me just put that on a page and in some ways that's a form of release and I think it encourages my readers to also release that as well. Mm, I want to unpack that process a little bit. You speak of, you know, putting to paper these messy thoughts that you keep internal. When writing through, you know, vulnerability, how do you discern what you feel should go out in the world and what should remain sacred um, with you and your sense of, you know, personal safety? Totally. I actually, you know, I'm like very anti-celebrity culture. I think the ways that we're taught to put people on pedestals is a very like dehumanizing thing for ourselves and for that person. It kind of creates a false idea that anybody can be perfect, right? And I also think about how a lot of the times people get really like, there's like controversy around like celebrities like lying or like not telling the whole truth about something or not showing like pictures of their kids or whatever. And I'm like, they don't owe you shit. You know, when I actually think about that all the time and about how if we're being real 
a lot of us choose to share what we wish and also choose to share what we don't. And I actually think that's okay. I think that's a boundary. There is a certain level of toxicity in feeling entitled to someone's entire life. Because I think we're always processing things in real time. And there's no way that we can really like allow that, right? Especially as like a non-white person, a non-white queer person. I don't really want people to know everything about me. What I did want to share in my book specifically, though it was very hard also to write about the very like personal moments of abuse that I endured, I really wanted to write about emotion because I wrote about some of like the real like sticky emotional situations I was in, but I wanted to do that to bring light to the fact that I know that so many people just experience these emotions as well and that they're impermanent and that they deserve to be released. Well, at the same time, I discerned what I didn't want to share and I actually really didn't want to share a lot about my family in this book. Um, I could have, for sure, and that's actually a journey that I'm still understanding and figuring out what I feel comfortable with. But it's really interesting because I think in my writing process, I also practice setting boundaries. And that's really important as artists, especially as artists of color. Again, because people feel entitled to us, period, especially now that, you know, capitalism has latched on and love to hear about the trauma and love to be like, oh, your parents were immigrants. Tell us all the painful stuff you've experienced or, you know, you're queer and trans. Tell us about all the trauma that you've endured. And it's like, no. What if I don't want my work to be shaped by that? You know, what if I actually want to share something different? Would you still see me as worthy of being understood then? vulnerability that you've been bringing to this conversation but that totally exudes in all of your work and I feel like often it can be rooted in negativity to be vulnerable is a sign of weakness or something to be ashamed of particularly if you aren't white or if you aren't like a cis male or socialized in a particular way um Definitely as like a femme Asian person, I feel like vulnerability can be like weaponized against me. How do you begin to draw upon the strength of vulnerability to move towards things in your book that are actually quite hopeful towards joy, towards more trust and love for ourselves? I kind of reiterating what I said before, I think the ability to be honest is like deeply radical, but also to source, especially in moments where an Asian femme person, an Asian femme queer person could feel vulnerable. And then also noting all the reasons why we feel vulnerable perpetually walking down the street, right? And there's a power in that, in naming how we don't feel safe and what needs to change. I think there is a lot of power in being vulnerable and I struggle with it so much, right? I feel like sometimes I even fall 
into a trap of like a curated vulnerability where I only let myself share something that will still make me look like I got out of it in the end, right? Or like I'm, but I'm over it now. Like I, I experienced this and this, but I'm over it now. But I think what it really is and the bravest act I think within being vulnerable is allowing people to see you and that being a reflection of you feeling like you're worthy of being seen like fully and deeply and closely. I think that's what intimacy is. I think that's what closeness calls for. And I was telling some friends last night, like I have some people that I've known in New York or known of in New York for like five years now. But every time we see each other, it's just, hey, good to see you, bye. Till next time, right? And there are certain levels of relationships that will probably remain like that for a while. But I realized after a while that that doesn't sustain me and just being known of is not even comparative to being known deeply and that requires vulnerability that requires closeness and that requires allowing yourself to be seen and loved even in the messiness uh, Mimi you're really explicit in the lineage of other writers um, and thinkers that inspire your work um, you reference in the work of uh, bell hooks a lot um, specifically her teaching that love is a practice um, I also feel an extension of this is that love and the way we love is learnt what strategies do you have for separating what healthy loving action is um, away from what we've been told to love or told how to love this is my life's work honestly <laughs> yeah. that's like the question that well if you could tell me. us in three lines that would be great <laughs> oh my god i mean that really is what i want to dedicate my entire writing career mm. to because i really got to a place after all this unlearning after being so close in queer community in new york after seeing queer people hurt each other and engage in conflict after seeing all of that i was just like so few of us have been taught how to love each other. So few of us, like my first look into romantic love was completely just like devastating. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's just really been so many times starting from scratch, questioning, especially like systemic violence and how that shapes love, questioning survival and how that shapes love. And I never blame my parents, right? Or I can't anymore, because I know that they just weren't taught how to love either. And they did what they could with what they had. And same, right? I have i don't blame myself for, for having been in toxic relationships. I hold myself accountable for the ways I've been toxic. But I also am like, I wasn't taught how to love. Neither was my partner usually, especially when I date other children of immigrants. Like the wounds are deep. And so I just really, like you said, believe what Bell Hook says about love being a practice and about rewiring and reinventing what love can look like through honestly tearing shit down and letting little seeds grow from the rubble. I can live to say I've experienced that. I can live to say that even in my moments of despair, especially when relationships fall apart or even community crumbles a little bit, 
I'm forced, I'm beckoned, I'm welcomed to rethink what love can look like, how we can atone, how we can heal together, how we can be honest with each other. And it's beautiful and it's possible. And I think that's what I hold on to every single day. And that's why I still am devoted to answering that question. Because I really want us to get to a place where we understand what healthy love is and looks like. And I also see people doing it all the time. And I learn a lot from a lot of people around me, especially queer and trans people. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I've similarly found a lot of beauty and possibility through queer and, and like gender expansive connections, particularly those that um, are also rooted in like being um, of like non-white experiences as well. And we're all kind of like scrambling to find just different possibilities of connection and kinship that aren't just exemplified in the world or affirmed. And you've often spoken about the transformation you've experienced in spaces that center queer people of color. What role does connectivity play in a healing journey for you? I have gone through so many false or not false, changing beliefs about healing. I thought for a while that healing required so much solitude and isolation. And I think there's a time that does call for that. I've also believed that self-love is a very like self-serving experience where I cut off everything that doesn't serve me, right? And I, I've always had a bit of a problem with that phrase. And it actually wasn't until I read Robin Wall Kimura's Braiding Sweetgrass that I deeply learned about connectivity and it wasn't even reading about people, but in ways it also was. Because Robin speaks so generously of indigenous wisdoms about most of the time plant kin, animal kin, their sense of connectivity, interconnection, which is without we would not survive a hundred percent, you know, like I wrote in my book about the three sisters um, that she talks about, which is the corn, the squash and the beans. And in a garden, all three of them help each other grow, right? One of them provides shade, another provides water, another provides a stalk for someone to climb on to reach the sun. Like that's so beautiful to me and it's so simple. And I, of course, inevitably made that connection with people and I'm like, we do that too. And especially I think indigenous communities and, you know, like our ancestors were doing that as well in their communities and villages, but that was taken away by a deep sense of like, needing to be hyper-independent, right? Needing to be your own person or isolating yourself in your little suburb. I think that has like deeply harmed a lot of us and has left us very existentially lonely. And so in my healing, I learned that that just wasn't working for me. And I couldn't mend all my wounds by myself. And I deeply required guidance. I deeply required shade sometimes. You know, I needed someone to prop me up sometimes so I could see the sun again. Not in a way that was codependent or lacked boundaries, but vulnerable in a way that I 
could see myself as a being that couldn't live without the connection with others. Mm. I get looking outside of people, or perhaps even looking to other people. Um, another form of connection that you speak of is your relationship. Um, to a Buddhist practice. Mm. Um, what role does a spiritual practice have in your understanding of love and connectivity? Everything. Mm. Yeah. I grew up Buddhist, but my parents didn't really practice it. There's just a lot of Buddha statues in my house. <laughs> and we'd go to a temple every Lunar New Year. That was the extent of it. But I remember being at the temple and not being like, it just felt very different to church because I also went to church because I went to a Catholic school. Felt like a very different practice. Felt like the burning of the incense and the bowing in gratitude was a lot slower. And it didn't feel like I had to apologize all the time. <laughs> and so I've always remembered that feeling as a child about just being in the grandeur of these temples, very peaceful spaces. And I actually started seeking that when I was going through that abusive relationship I write about. Or it was, it actually came to me. I remember being in a crowd at a queer parade in Chinatown in New York City. And this woman comes up to me and she just goes, hey, you look like, just like you have great energy. I was like, thank you. And she's like, what do you do? And we start talking. And she is a Vietnamese woman in her 50s who is like the biggest ally I know, genuinely, in like a not cringe way at all, and a Buddhist. And one day she just invited me, without any pressure, she invited me to the temple that she goes to, and I went. And living in a city like New York or living in any city in late capitalism, really, you live a life of just feeling like you need to prove yourself constantly through work, through success, through establishment, through institution, et cetera. And I was deeply in that trap for a long time. But what transformed me at this temple was that I could just do nothing and have nothing to prove like, I didn't have to prove myself worthy of a faith. I didn't have to prove myself worthy of appreciation. I just had to be and exist. And I think amid all my wounds that I've uncovered in Be Not Afraid of Love and ongoing, I realized so much of it was the search to prove myself worthy of love. And so Buddhism has helped me so much in realizing that the search is over, right? Because it's there, it's in me. And it's in that connection with the communities that I practice with, where we can just literally breathe together and feel like miraculous doing that. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters.